Hi, I'm Billy Glosson, lead pastor of Coram Deo Church in Morganton, North Carolina, and you're listening to the Coram Deo Podcast, a place to engage with sermons, devotionals, prayer, and everything else we're doing at Coram Deo. Thanks for listening. Verse 1, chapter 1. We're going to go all the way to 4. All the way to 4. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekali. Now, it happened in the month of Cheslev, in the twelfth year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah and asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and the gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for the days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. All right, I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your word, and that we can still um, proclaim it loudly and boldly. I ask that you be with Billy, that you would use him, that you would hide him, and that you would provide the right words and thoughts, that you would order his mind to speak very clear and boldly to us about your goodness and your love and your mercy and what you will have for us. And I just ask that you would make us humble, eager to learn, eager to repent, and uh, we welcome you here, Holy Spirit. Thank you that you're already here with us. I ask that you would make us more aware of yourself. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So, yeah, we are starting in Nehemiah today. We're going to be just hopping in at the very beginning of these first few verses. And I think all of us can relate to getting bad news. Really, that's what is happening here at the beginning of Nehemiah. Um, there are multiple occasions in my life where I can think of getting um, bad news, right? I think of back to college when I found out. Actually, I was in high school. Wow, my my senior year of high school, I found out my brother Drew had shattered his nose in a bunch of different pieces and was flying back home and showed up and just looked like somebody had hit him in the face with a baseball bat. And that was some pretty shocking news, but he was okay. I remember when we got uh, much harder news later in our marriage when we uh, found out that we had miscarried. And I remember sitting in the doctor's office with Hannah and just crying and weeping and being broken before the Lord and before Hannah, just because we didn't know how what to do, how to pick up the pieces. Um, <laughs> and so we just realized that like there are these parts of our life where we hear these stories, we hear these really intense things that come to us, and we're just taken aback by it. We're almost broken by it. That's really what is happening here in Nehemiah. And so today, we're going to kind of wade through Nehemiah together. We're going to walk through this because there's a lot actually within these first few verses that introduces us to the character of Nehemiah. It gives us really a full understanding of who he is, why he's so concerned about Jerusalem and its walls, and what he's hoping to do. And today, as we wade into Nehemiah, what I want us to see is really what I want us to get at is this. You and I, we should long for and pray for restoration. We should long for and pray for restoration. Now today, 
is going to honestly be a little bit of teaching because in order to really understand Nehemiah, we've got to understand the context. So I want to back up a little bit and set the scene for you. Now, I'm not going to give you a full overview of biblical history. We're going to start a little bit later in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus. God calls the nation of Israel out of the tyranny of Egypt and leads them up to the border of the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. And there, the people of Israel doubt the goodness of God. They doubt the grace of God. They doubt the power of God. So God allows them to then wander in the wilderness for 40 years while he kills off that generation who refuses to put their trust in him. Then, under Joshua, not under Moses, God leads the people of the nation of Israel into the promised land. They drive out the Canaanites and they are an established nation. And then they begin to look around and they want a king. And so God seeing this, knowing that he, he should be their king, right? They should look to no one else but the Lord, but knowing that they won't stop gives them the desire of their heart, which was a king. And they get a man's man. Saul, according to the Bible, was a foot taller than any other man in Israel. He was the best hunter. He had muscles just coming out of everywhere, out of his turtleneck. He had hair everywhere. He was a man's man. Men wanted to be him. Ladies loved him. And Saul, like our brothers and sisters in the wilderness, who doubted the goodness and provision of God, well, he doubted God. And he offers sacrifices that were unacceptable to God and was removed as king and then replaced by David, who was a shepherd boy who played the harp. Now, when we first meet David, we're kind of just thinking he's the opposite of Saul, right? In fact, when they're looking to kind of, you know, replace when Samuel comes, and he's looking to see who's he going to pick from Jesse's sons. He doesn't even look at David because he's just this little boy out in the field with the sheep. But the truth is, David is a boss. He is. He killed a bear with his own hands. That's better than what you've done, right? I'm sorry. It just is. I know how we hunt now, right? You kind of just like feed the deer for a year and then one day you perch up in a tree above it. It comes back to get that corn that you've been putting out for a year and you kill it, right? And somehow that makes you a man. I don't know. But here's the deal. If you kill it, with your bare hands, like if you just jump out of the tree, you know, I'll grant that to you. That's pretty amazing, right? If you're feeding it all year and then you cap it, I don't know if that's seems a little unfair. But David is not like that, right? David fights a bear and a lion and David is made king. And under David's kingship, Israel flourishes. In fact, all the threats against the nation of Israel are in many ways crushed under the reign of David. He goes to war against the Philistines. He goes to war against anyone who would threaten the borders of Israel. And he just wrecks shop. In my head, I can't get my mind around, you know, when you read, when you read the Old Testament, why are the Philistines like, you know what? Let's go for it again. Let's try that again. They just keep losing over and over. And then when David dies... He turns the kingdom over to his son, Solomon. Solomon builds the temple to the Lord and there is peace and the reign of David is just continuing to happen. Israel becomes this regional power. There's no real threats to its border and it's flourishing. But you begin to see some concern on Solomon's part 
about what would come after him, right? If you pay attention while you're reading the book of Ecclesiastes, when he says, what good is wealth and power if your kids are idiots? Now, he doesn't say that exactly, right? But he, that's a paraphrase, but he's really kind of pushing this idea of you're just going to pass your wealth and your power on to morons. Now, it's going to not read exactly like that, but that's the point, right? If you're just going to pass it down to people who are going to be foolhardy with it, what's the point? And sure enough, right after Solomon, you see the nation of Israel that was a regional power. It fractures into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is what was called Israel, and the southern kingdom was called Judah. Now, the northern kingdom did not fare well at all. They had wicked king after wicked king, after wicked king. Finally, in 722 BC, the Assyrians laid siege to the northern empire and deported and really spread across the ancient empire the Israelites in the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, Judah fares a little bit better, right? They're able to hang in there a bit. They're they're able to kind of just keep it going. They had a godly king and then a wicked king. A godly king and then a wicked king. A godly king and a wicked king. But 136 years after the northern kingdom is conquered and the people are deported and exiled, the southern kingdom of Judah falls. Not by the Assyrians, but now by the Babylonians. They are the reigning, ruling country. They are the empire in the world at this time. So the Babylonians, uh, they are deported in the southern kingdom and spread and they spread them across the ancient world as slaves and servants to the reigning Babylonian empire. Now, just to catch you up a little bit on history, Persia shows up and decides, hey, we're going to run the world. So the Persians now conquer the Babylonians who had conquered the Assyrians. And now the Persian empire is taking root in the ancient world. Then in second Chronicles, and I mean, I really probably don't even need to quote Second Chronicles because I know so many of you probably have that book memorized. But at the end of Second Chronicles, the Holy Spirit hard presses Cyrus, the king of Persia, that the Jews should be released to go back, or at least a portion of the Jews, to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And that's where we get the book of Ezra. Now here's something interesting. The book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah are events that happen almost simultaneously, at least in part. And in fact, most of the early manuscripts, Ezra and Nehemiah are actually one book. They're not two. So that's why we are in history here. That's where we're at in history. So we're going to pick up the story here with Nehemiah. Okay, We're going to look specifically at the story of Nehemiah. So, the first thing we're going to see is this, walls are broken down. So let's look at the first three verses again and see what happens. It says this, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Sheslov, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The walls of Jerusalem are is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. So that's where we start the scene here. Right? Nehemiah appears here in the first chapter of the book that goes by his name as a man really at the top of his profession. But we know nothing of how he got there. 
We don't know where he was born. We don't really know anything about his upbringing. We don't know anything about Nehemiah's teenage years or how does he become the cupbearer of King Artaxerxes. We, we, we've jumped ahead, really, 13 years from the close of Ezra to the beginning of the book of Nehemiah. It's in the year 445 BC, and we're in the capital, we're in a place called Susa, which is uh, Susa, the, the citadel, or Susa, the, the, cap, uh, the capital. And really, what this is, is, it's a fortified city. It's not the capital of Babylon, it's not the capital of the empire, it's a citadel, it's the winter residence of Persian kings. It's perhaps one of the most ancient cities in the world. It's about 150 miles east of the Tigris River and about 250 miles west of Babylon. It's on the edge of the border of Iran, so it's still uh, in ruins today. It had been captured by Cyrus just about the time when the first wave of exiles had come back, and that's almost now 100 years in the past. It's a huge city, 250 acres, and the citadel, the palace, was itself situated on some mountains overlooking a river, a grand palace with 72 columns, upwards of 70 to 80 feet high in height. It was a wonderful place in the winter for Persian kings like Artaxerxes to just kind of come and spend their winter in. And now we meet Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a cupbearer. Now that's an incredibly important job. The things that Persian kings feared the most was being poisoned. If you wanted to dispose of a king or to get rid of a king, one of the ways of doing it was poison. So you'd hired or you'd have someone that you trusted and you'd have to trust this man implicitly, right? To trust them with your life. And wherever the king is, the cupbearer was. Whenever the king ate, the cupbearer ate. Several times a day, the cupbearer is there testing the food, making sure that all is well. And so here's this guy, Nehemiah. He's drinking the best wine. And really, the Persians have an incredible history of winemaking. And Nehemiah is living it up. He is the chosen cupbearer. He is one of the, those people that you just you, you trust with your life, right? That This is a guy that we know he can be trustworthy. And he's in a man of immense integrity, right? You can't exaggerate the trustworthiness of Nehemiah because the king trusts him with his life. He would drink, he would pour some of the wine into the cup of his hand, and he'd drink it. And they'd wait a few seconds, right? See what's going to happen, and, and maybe a few minutes to see whether Nehemiah is going to drop on the floor. And if he didn't, well, then the wine was good to drink. And he was a food taster as well. So Nehemiah is there serving the king, and we catch up to this story here where his brother, Hananiah, returns from Jerusalem to Susa. And he's there and he's speaking to Nehemiah. And what does Nehemiah do? Nehemiah, as far as we know, he's never been in Jerusalem, right? He's never seen the city. He's never seen the temple. He probably knew of those who had left under the time of Ezra 13 to 14 years in the past. And he would have known about them. He may have been too young to go with them at the time. It may not have even been possible because he was the cupbearer to the king. Perhaps this was his job since he was a teenager. But what does he do when he meets his brother, his fellow Israelite, who's come from Jerusalem? He seems to ask all kinds of questions, right? The same thing we do when we want to know how people are doing. Man, how are they doing? How so-and-so? But catch this, how is the Lord's work prospering. How are the people of God? How is Jerusalem? And this is where we really kind of get the meat of the story, because the news that Nehemiah gets is shocking. 
and it's heart-wrenching. Things are not going well. The walls of the city in Jerusalem are still in ruins on the ground. There's evidence of them having been burnt. There's something that happened in between Ezra and Nehemiah. The work had begun, but now it's stopped. Artaxerxes has stopped this work, and Nehemiah is burdened. His heart is heavy. He's concerned about the kingdom. He's concerned about the cause of God. What's he supposed to do about it? What can Nehemiah do? He's the cupbearer. It's not like he could take a week off. right? He can't just go and say, hey, can I take a couple weeks? can't just post on Instagram, out for the week. Like He can't do that. The king ate every day, and every day Nehemiah would be there, doing the king's bidding, looking the part, playing the role. So what does he do? Well, let's see second. We should, like Nehemiah, long for and pray for restoration. Look at verse 4 with me. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. When you or I receive bad news about someone or something, how do you generally respond? Do you turn inward or do you turn to the Lord? Nehemiah hears the plight of Jerusalem and his heart breaks. He sits and weeps and mourns. Then he fasts and prays. What are some of the issues today that break your heart? Where do you and I see broken down walls in our own city, in our nation? Where do you see broken down walls in your own life? See, upon hearing this news, Nehemiah turns to the Lord. He turns to the Lord through fasting and prayer. And we're going to look in more detail at the prayer next week. But what does this reveal to you about Nehemiah's character? Nehemiah is a man that trusts in his God. Now, I don't think I have to tell you that this has been a difficult year. The fact that you're hearing me right now on a screen or hearing me through a podcast is enough to tell you that. This year has been terrible. Now, it seems that on top of a pandemic, we have the reminder that racism is still alive and well, and we see brokenness abound as cities are ravaged and people feel this overwhelming frustration of anger and angst and pain, and we see our brothers and sisters who mourn generations of brokenness. The walls are broken down to rubble. If it wasn't enough that there were already people who are jobless and hurting and scared, people who've lost loved ones, people who are battling daily, now we have this present reminder that evil is alive and well. Now friends, what is our response as the church of Jesus Christ? More specifically, what is our first response? Are we like Nehemiah? Are we cut to the quick in such a way that it leads us to be broken and lament? Are we like Nehemiah that in our sorrow, we fall on our face before the Lord? And would that we long for restoration. Would that we long to see the walls rebuilt, to see lives mended by the hope of the gospel, 
to see our city renewed as the gospel takes deep roots and brings about justice and reconciliation? Would we long to see revival where faith is genuine and lives are deeply impacted and changed? Now, Nehemiah is a man who prays specific prayer. And we're going to look into those specific prayers next week. But I also want to say this. Nehemiah is a man of action. He doesn't just pray and say, Okay, Lord, I leave it in your hands. I'm going to move on with my life and go back to being cupbearer. Nehemiah gets his hands dirty. He gets to the work. He seeks to rebuild. But before we dive into that, we have to start right here. Do you long for restoration? Does your heart ache? I think for many of us, we don't know how to lament. There's a lot to lament about over the last several weeks and months. We don't know how to bring our pain before the Lord. Pastor Mark Frogup gives us four elements of lament. This is what he says. The first thing we do is we turn to God. In our pain... We choose to come before the Lord. We come before God honestly. We come before God humbly and we say, Lord, I am in pain. And that's the second thing. We bring our complaint. Bring your complaint. Biblical lament humbly and honestly identifies the pain. It identifies the questions and frustrations that are raging in our souls. The next thing we do in lament is we ask boldly for help. Lament invites us to dare to hope in God's promises as we ask for His help. And then finally, lament does not end in despair, but lament chooses to trust. Right? This prayer language, it moves us to renew our commitment to trust in God as we navigate the brokenness of life. Friend, have you lamented? I mean, have you just lamented that we're not together right now? That we haven't been able to sing together? Are you lamenting right now that there are people who are broken? People who are in great agony as they've lost loved ones? Are you lamenting with those who feel like for generations they've been repressed? Are you broken? Friends, we do not mourn like the world. We cry as those with hope. Has your lament stirred in you a yearning for restoration? If your heart has longed for normalcy, right? If we could just get back to February, over and above restoration, I pray that God would use Nehemiah's example to awaken you. That you would long for and hurt for the brokenness in the world. That you would hurt for your brothers and sisters in various places all across the world and that you would petition the Lord to work and act and move with great power. That you would long to see walls being built back up and a true transformative renewal. Friends, we are invited to step into the story of Nehemiah. We are invited, as Nehemiah was, to find our place in God's great plan to rebuild, renew, and restore all things through His Son, Jesus Christ. Rich 
and poor, pastor or single mom, all of the people of God are invited to participate in the great scheme of redemption. And as we dig into the book of Nehemiah, my first hope and prayer is that you would see the greater Nehemiah who died and rose to rebuild, renew, and restore all things. My second hope is that you would taste Jesus' love and burden for you, for his church, and for our city. That he cares about the broken walls. He cares about the broken lives. And my third hope is that you would play your role, that you would find your place in Jesus' work to rebuild, renew, and restore. But all of this starts with a broken heart. When I first went to school, to Central, um, small Bible college in Missouri, I took a book that was beat up and worn out. It's a book called Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. And I think I've read that book more than any other book except for Scripture. It's a story of a, a small church in the 1960s in a culturally polarizing world. A young white guy pastors a predominantly black church. And he realizes that he is ill-equipped to lead these people. That he does not know how to love them well, does not know how to serve them well, and is at his wit's end. And he makes a decision. He's going to quit. He goes to Florida and he's taking a vacation. He's out on the water and he's like, I'm going to quit. This is too much. And he feels the Holy Spirit stirring in his soul. That if he would be broken and he would commit to pray for his city and to pray with his people and to stop leaning on his own strength, that he would see God do incredible things. And if you know anything of the story of the Brooklyn Tabernacle, then you know the amazing things that God has done through that church. And that's the beauty of the story. Is it's not the power of some man and his steps it's someone finding the end of themselves and falling face down before the Lord with a broken heart, saying, God, only you. Last week, as we closed Titus, we talked about our God being able. And I believe that, that our God is able. But if you and I are not broken, if we are indifferent, if we are, eh, whatever, and we just kind of focus on our little section of the world, I fear that we will never get to the place of revival. You see, it starts with a broken heart. It starts with seeing the brokenness of our world and realizing that the only way that lasting change can happen is if Christ breaks through. The only way that racism dies is if Jesus breaks through. If he opens our eyes and shows us the ways that we have passively ignored and been indifferent to privilege and we've been indifferent to our brothers and sisters who have been in this plight of struggle, the only way that we're going to get past disease and brokenness and famine and lost jobs is Christ and Christ alone. If you found yourself slipping into indifference, then may today be a day of repentance. Right, if you're not broken by the sinister, insidious racism that is alive in our world, may you be compelled to repentance. 
If you are not heartbroken at the lives who are in shambles as they seek to navigate through COVID-19 and ransacked shelves, may you be compelled to compassion. If you are indifferent to the bitter war of outrage between so many, may you be compelled to put on the mind of Christ to live as one who is humble, gentle, and considers others more important than yourself. May Nehemiah call us to hope in Jesus, to hope in Jesus' work to build, renew, and restore. Friends, we should long for and pray for restoration. We should long for and pray for restoration. The story of Nehemiah starts stark and simple. He hears news, it breaks him, and he fasts and he prays. I think it's so tempting for us to blitz through that. Let's get to the next thing. Tell me what to do, how to get my hands dirty. Let's get our hands dirty first by folding them and bending a knee in prayer and asking the God of all creation to work mightily amongst us, to bring about revival, to bring about restoration. Let's pray together. God, if we want to see our world change, grow, and be shaped, only you can. If we want to see people with vastly different political opinions and agendas come together under one banner, it will only be the banner of Christ. If we want to see generations of systemic racism fall and crumble, it will only be at the name of Jesus. If we want to see true justice, it will not be the vengeance that we carry out in our hands. It will be the justice of the Lord. God, we need you. Our world is broken. We hear stories of the ruins. And I fear, God, we are so numb we are not like Nehemiah. The, the news does not trouble us to, to fall to our knees and pray. It's just one of a myriad of incoming transmissions that we take in, digest, and move on. God, forgive us. Break our hearts. Cause us to long for, to yearn for restoration, to cry out, Maranatha, to long for the day when you will come and make all things new. That in that longing, we look around and we don't say, oh, just get me out of here. But you say, help me get to work. And that we move forward, Lord, trusting and relying in your work to rebuild, renew, restore. Help us to trust in you, Jesus. Help us to believe in the good news of the gospel. We pray all of this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the Quorum Deo podcast. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or our website, quorumdeonc.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram for a bigger picture inside the life of the church. Grace and peace be with you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ.